but get involved in your local election. Look who's look up who's the DA. And if they're not doing stuff that, that you that you agree with and they're standing up and saying that they're doing it on behalf of the people of your state, then make sure that you hold them accountable and you, you know, call them out and you call their office and you vote them out. Welcome to the Big Kid Problems podcast, based on the comedic social channel all about not wanting to be an adult. I'm your host, Sarah Merrill, the writer, creator, and pretty normal human behind the popular Instagram, Twitter, blog, and now podcast, Big Kid Problems. So I've spent the last almost decade making jokes about navigating the adult world. And as I've gotten older, I've realized that no matter what your age is, we all have big kid problems. We're all just trying to figure it out. And you know what? That's okay. So each week, we're going to take a funny yet informative look at a specific struggle or big kid problem, if you will. Then we'll break it down with a rotating cast of comedians, personalities, and experts to actually give us the tools and resources to help us solve our big kid problem of the week. From love and relationships, money, career, physical and mental health, bad decisions, and just general life responsibilities, nothing is off limits. So thank you so much for joining me as we navigate adulthood together. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another week and another episode of the Big Kid Problems podcast. For my new listeners, welcome. I'm so excited to have you here. For my longtime peeps, welcome back. This week's episode is a little different from our standard topics, but it is super timely to what's going on around us. And I like to think it also goes well with our episode from last week. But today, we are exploring behind the curtain of the criminal justice system. As someone who has watched 400 plus hours of Law & Order SVU, I think I'm somewhat of an expert and uh, no, I'm just kidding. I am bringing in a real expert today, friend of the show and candidate for New York City District Attorney, Eliza Orleans. Eliza has actually been on the show before and I'm not supposed to like pick favorite episodes, like they're all special in their own way. But the last episode that she was on is truly one of my all-time faves. She talked about resilience and mental toughness last time she was on the show. I think it was episode 19, if anyone wants to go back and check it out. But we talked all about her experience on the show Survivor and the mental tricks she used to get through a truly grueling experience like that. But what we didn't really get to talk about on that episode was Eliza's job in the real world, where she is arguably even more of a badass than she was on Survivor. Eliza has been a public defender in New York City for over a decade where she has represented thousands through the criminal justice system. We're going to talk about how the system adversely affects people of color and those in lower income communities, what really happens once you've entered the justice system and why it is so hard to get out. We'll also talk about some reforms she can see firsthand that really need to happen. And most importantly, why we all really, really need to pay attention to our state and local elected officials. If we ever want to make real changes in our community. Now, I said it on last week's episode, and I'm going to say it again. This is not a political show, and I promise I'm going to get back to making dick jokes and some lighter content starting next week. But right now, there is so much energy around racial injustice, and the peaceful protests over the last few weeks have really been incredible and truly inspiring. But it's important to remember that the act of protesting itself can only do so much. To really make changes, we're all going to need to take a hard look at some of the systems and institutions 
protections we have in place. So I'm really excited to jump into this conversation with Eliza. I think this one is going to be pretty eye-opening. Without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Real quick, if you know me, you know that I am obsessed with CBD, especially when it comes to getting a good night's sleep. I have tried lots of CBD brands out there, and luckily during quarantine, I discovered Beam. Okay. Beam contains a super rare and revolutionary form of CBD called nano CBD, which is super tiny and highly absorbable. So it is much more effective and fast acting than some of your other CBD brands. And since I use CBD mostly to de-stress and to help me fall asleep, I am obsessed with Beam's dream powder, which includes not only CBD, but melatonin, magnesium, and reishi, which helps your body wind down, lowers your cortisol, and promotes restful, better sleep. Trust me, I am about that life. The Beam Dream Powder is mixed with cocoa, cinnamon, and monk fruit. So you just add hot or cold water and it's like a tasty little drinkable bedtime treat. And now they actually just released their same Dream Powder formula in capsule form. So if you don't feel like making a drink before bedtime, you can just pop one of those suckers in and drift off to La La Land. Easy peasy. Another reason I love Beam is that it is 100% THC free. I'm kind of a stickler about that because I know when I even have like the tiniest amount of THC, it can heighten my anxiety and it can have some other adverse effects on people. So if you want to get the benefits of CBD without having to worry about THC, trust me, Beam is the way to go. So if you haven't tried it yet, but want to, I have a 15% off discount code just for our big kid listeners. Just head to Beam tlc.com and use code BIGKID at checkout. Again, that's beamtlc.com and use that code BIGKID for 15% off. Eliza, thank you so much for being back on the show. This is so good to have you. Of course. Thank you for having me. I always love talking to you. It's so much fun. I know. So much fun. I mean, despite all the craziness that's happening right now, um, mm. it's, good, it's good to see a familiar face. But I just kind of want to jump in real quick. Last time we had you on the show, we obviously talked about your stint on Survivor, which was awesome. We talked about like your resilience and having to live on an island for however many days you were there, which was really, really cool. But actually, we didn't really get into too much of your personal life. And in your personal life, you're just as much of a badass because you're a public defender. Which is yeah, yeah, which is awesome. And for anybody who doesn't watch as much SBU as I do, can you explain like what a public defender is and like a little bit about your role? Yeah, I think Law and Order doesn't necessarily explain the the criminal legal system exactly as it is, and kind of puts it in this very black and white terms. You know, someone is guilty, someone is innocent. Everything is oh, we solve the crime at the end, and the bad guy goes to jail. Um, but it turns out, you know, it's much more complicated than that. And I have spent over a decade as a public defender in Manhattan, um, representing people charged with crimes. So anything from kind of low-level, really, really minor offenses. I've had clients arrested for taking up two seats on the train or laying down on a park bench uh, to low-level drug possession, all the way up through much more serious, violent offenses. So as a public defender, 
you know, when someone gets arrested, you probably have heard on Law and Order, they say you have the right to an attorney. If you cannot afford one, one will be provided for you. Well, that's the public defender. So, so you know, I work arraignments where I uh, pick up cases and, and meet clients who usually have been arrested in the last 24 hours. And those are the people who, who I see the charges against them. I go talk to them and, and I, I represent them. I have seen our cruel, unjust criminal legal system operate for over a decade. And I've watched as thousands of people have been cycled through the system, you know, and mostly it's it's people who get up every day and go to work, you know, who, who maybe live paycheck to paycheck, people from lower income communities, black and brown people, LGBTQIA people, um, you know, people with disabilities. And and I see how people who are marginalized get targeted by the by the criminal legal system. And I I realize that I won't be able to change the system as a public defender. And so that's what led me to, to the decision to run for Manhattan District Attorney. I know. I am so excited about that. And I can't wait to get into more about that and talking about the different roles. But before we even jump into that, I, I, what I thought, what originally grabbed me to reach out to you for an interview is to talk about this, this article that you just wrote in the Washington Post, which was really, really great for anybody who hasn't read it. I'm going to link it in our show notes. You can check it out. But you were basically talking about the, um, the Central Park video that just came out recently. For anybody who doesn't know about that, basically, if you're living under a rock, a white woman in Central Park, she's been, she's basically been dubbed the Central Park Karen. She got into an argument with a black man about not leashing her dog in the park. I mean, essentially, she was in the wrong, but uh, she was caught on camera basically calling the police and lying, saying that she felt like her life was being threatened by this man and trying to get him arrested. And luckily, this incident was caught on camera. A lot of times, these incidents aren't caught on camera. And you wrote a whole article about like why this is so problematic. So I'd love to turn it over to you just to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think what happened when I first saw that video was, of course, what this woman did was horrible. And she, you know, in a negative way, weaponized her whiteness to say, I'm going to call the police and say an, an African-American man was threatening me. And she knew that the police were likely to believe her. But I wanted to point out that this is, this is more systemic than just this one woman calling the police on this one man, because there are so many stories that follow a similar pattern. And that's a white person calls the police on a black man. You know, the police arrive, they take the side of the white accuser. They refuse to believe, you know, a black man's version of the events. He's arrested. An outrageous amount of bail is set, which his family cannot afford to make in most cases. And he can't buy his freedom. So he's sent to Rikers Island, which, by the way, is a epicenter for the COVID crisis right now. And people can sit there for days, weeks, months, or even years waiting for their trial or waiting to, to fight their charges. And oftentimes these cases are dropped or someone takes a plea to a lesser charge. And in the meantime, that person has lost their job, their home, their children, or some combination. And so thankfully, that's not what happened to Christian Cooper, but the, the elements were all there. And so mm-hmm. I've seen this happen over and over where you know someone's hysterical 911 call gets used as evidence of guilt. And the, the DA will say, well, listen to the fear in her voice. You can tell she she could sense a threat, and so all too often we don't have someone like Christian Cooper recording the interaction to show that in fact that's not what happened, and people don't think about you know how these circumstances can escalate and and really 
ruin people's lives and, and have devastating consequences. Yeah, devastating consequences. And that that's what's that's what's really interesting to me is when we actually like break this down um and talk about what happens. Let's say in, in an alternate new universe, you know, he didn't have that recording and he was arrested and taken to jail. Like walk us through walk us through maybe a little bit of like the criminal justice system. You know, what happens like once somebody is arrested? I mean, obviously they call you. <laughs> Well, so usually I'm just there. They don't actually have to call me. So, you know, attorneys are assigned to be there in court on, you know, for arraignments and you get the charges, you you go in the back. Usually right now, everything's happening virtually uh, due to the pandemic. But, you know, you're like, John Doe, John Doe, it's your lawyer. He, you know, your client comes in the booth and I'm like, my name's Eliza Orleans and I'm going to represent you. And we talk about the charges. We talk about what what they're being accused of, whether there's going to be a request for bail. You know, the, the district attorney decides whether or not to ask for bail in a case. And sometimes that bail is an amount where the person, I mean, it may as well be a million dollars because for some people, a $500 bail may as well be a million dollars. There's no way they can afford to pay that. Wait, so, before we go on, can you actually, I, I, when I started like looking into this a little bit more, actually the whole bail system, like actually confuses me a little bit. Like what, cause you know what is actually really interesting is I just watched the Jeffrey Epstein thing on Netflix and basically like it's just, and then I watched 13th on Netflix, like right after. And it was just like a, such a crazy thing. Like bail, like will basically buy your freedom. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you can afford it, like obviously like some privileged people out there can just uh, afford any amount to pay. And then for the people who can't afford to, like, if you can't afford bail, like you just said, if it's $500, it might as well be a million dollars. Like what happens when you can't afford, like, like how does bail work? <laughs> Let me back up. So the purpose of bail is supposed to be that it's supposed to ensure your return to court. That's the purpose. So you put up an amount of money and it guarantees that you're going to come back to court and then you get the money back at the end of the case. If, you know, assuming you showed up all the times you're supposed to show up, you do get the money back. You get the money back as long as you make it to, as long as you come to your court dates, you don't forfeit your bail. So the purpose of bail, it was really to ensure people's return to court. That's its stated goal. However, bail has really been weaponized to, to be instead a coercive measure that forces people to take pleas in order to get out of jail or that holds people in who are just simply too poor to afford to pay for their freedom. And so we say in this country, oh, you're presumed innocent until proven guilty. But unfortunately, that's not true unless you are wealthy enough to buy your freedom. And so if you look at cases like Harvey Weinstein, who had a pre-arranged bail of $1 million, which is a 50th of his net worth that he arranged. It was paid. He never spent one night in jail, not one night in jail, despite the fact that he was facing violent sexual assault charges where he was facing a life sentence. He didn't spend one night in jail until after he was convicted. And he came back to court, he came back to court, he came back to court. And yet people on much less serious offenses sit in jail for up to years. I mean, yesterday was the anniversary of the five-year anniversary of Khalif Browder's death. I don't know if you heard about him. He was a teenage kid who was accused of stealing a backpack and bail was set at a few thousand dollars. His family couldn't afford to pay it. He was put in solitary confinement for two of those years. He struggled with mental health issues, tried to take his own life twice while at Rikers. And then ultimately his case was dismissed. He was released. You know, He became like the poster child of why we need to end cash bail and ultimately took his own life. And 
you know, it, it just goes to show like how inhumane this is and how it's just simply perpetuating wealth-based detention. You know, you get worse sentences, you get longer sentences, you get worse outcomes of your case when you are detained um, leading up to your, to your resolution. And so it just perpetuates this racist, oppressive system that we have in place. Yeah. There's a couple of things I kind of want to break, break down there. You mentioned, you know, obviously you can't afford bail. You basically have to stay. You, you have two options, basically. You can make a plea deal and get out, or you can stay and you can get sent to prison and basically wait your trial. Is that, that's right? Right. How long does it usually take? Like, if you, if you do take the option, you're like, I'm innocent. I want to actually fight for my justice here and, and go to court. How long can you be waiting in prison? Well, so you could end up sitting in jail for up to years waiting for your case to go to trial. Years. So, I mean, if you think about the fact that in just a matter of days, like let's say you're locked up for even just a few days, you miss work. So you lose your job, you lose your apartment, you can't pay your rent, you lose your home. If you're a single parent, you lose your kids to foster care. So just a matter of days can cause such huge devastating effects in your life. And yet people are held in for weeks, months, years waiting to fight their case. And Rikers... And most prisons are like no joke, you know, like getting sent to a place like that. Like I, I know you just mentioned uh, the teenager that was was sent basically to to a serious prison um, where, you know, you you can be the victim of like serious violence. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, it can really have a damaging effect. I, I can't, I, I honestly like, can't imagine spending time in, in a hardcore prison like Rikers. I, I, I've heard you, I've heard you actually talk about on social media, like how dangerous it is for um, prisoners right now. Yeah. Well, jails and prisons have always had the problems of being overcrowded and, you know, lack of access to certain things. But during a pandemic, it's just exacerbated in such a major way. So, so people already are, you know, there are way too many people overcrowded in, in cells and whatnot. And so there's no ability to social distance. You know, there's a lack of access to adequate medical care for all the people who are there. There's, you know, they run out of soap. There are like 30 to 40 people sharing a toilet. Um, they tell people, oh, you know, in order to be six feet apart, sleep with your head to foot, sleep your head this way and your head this way when the beds are, are, are 18 inches apart. So clearly we know that that's not social distancing in a meaningful way. Hand sanitizer, because it contains alcohol, is literally contraband. So you could be charged with an additional crime if you possess hand sanitizer while you're incarcerated. And so all of these things that you think about to like keep a public health crisis at bay are not available to you when you're in jail. And so, of course, it has spread like wildfire. It's been like a petri dish in all of the jails and prisons across America. And and the COVID infection rates have been incredibly high. And instead of just saying, okay, then the people who are arrested for for low-level offenses, for things where they're there for a technical parole violation or or stealing something or whatever, they don't need to be incarcerated. Um, and, And we've seen it in other countries. They're furloughing tens of thousands of people who are incarcerated. And yet in New York, we are still... The Manhattan DA, Cy Vance, is still sending people to Rikers Island and asking for additional permissions to send people to keep them there indefinitely during a pandemic. Yeah, that's right. Because I've also heard that too, like courts aren't running at the same speed that they have been. So you're actually going to be sitting your ass in Rikers for even longer right now. 
right. There are people sitting there just waiting for someone to even bring, like there's an accusation, but there's no one who has actually sworn to the accusation. There's no one who has testified in front of a grand jury because we're not convening grand juries right now. You know, they're, this is all just like upholding and propagating this, this, this system that we have. Yeah. And that's what's crazy. I mean, going back to that Central Park story, it's like that white woman, you know, like we all have like this like white privilege. Like we do not understand that like a phone call like that, the like I don't think she I don't think she understood like what she was doing and like the actual like life danger she was putting this man in. Like anybody going through anybody going through like you said, like a very a very getting arrested for something very, very minor. It goes from something pretty minor to actually ruining your life, getting your losing your job and sitting in a prison cell that you could potentially contract a deadly disease. Right. And this is all assuming that the police don't show up and put their knee on your neck in the course of your arrest and kill you on the spot. Ugh, man, it's so crazy. So even with all of that, so we we mentioned that was like one option. You obviously can wait for your trial date. If you get arrested, you're sitting in prison, you can wait for your trial date by going into the prison system and waiting it out, which sounds awful. Or you mentioned it earlier too, like you can strike a plea deal, which I, when I started digging into this research, I was pretty shocked because I think we all think people getting sent to prisons or pleading guilty, it's because they were guilty of a crime. But when you look at it, like I've read some statistics anywhere from like 90 to 97% of these infractions, like people who are getting arrested just plead guilty because they they want to get it over with. Can you can you talk a little bit about that and what that means when somebody like why people are doing that and I guess what that means for the individual who is then guilty of like on paper guilty of a crime. Yeah. Well, so I think that that all of this is is interconnected. So the so the the bail system, you know, for for far too long prosecutors have used cash bail and pretrial incarceration to leverage these forced plea deals to, to get people to plead guilty regardless of actual guilt and to, to make sure that they are like getting these convictions. And so, so the, the, the problem is the economic bias in our justice system, which, which relies on money to get people out, has created a poverty penalty. So, so many people are pleading guilty and being unjustifiably discriminated against simply because they don't have the resources to pay. And so maybe they would fight a case if they were able to be out and going to work every day and being at home with their family and still being able to put food on the table. But if the choice is take a plea now, get time served, be able to get out and maybe get my job back and maybe be able to you know, get my life back and be done with the case or sit in jail, many people just choose to, to take the plea. And I would say you're right. It's, it's, you know, as a public defender for over a decade, I would say over 90% of my cases ended in a plea of some sort. Oftentimes it's a lower plea than the, than the charge that they're charged with. But that again, relates to why the DA is so important because the district attorney is the person who determines what charges are brought. And so if a person is upcharged and then offered a lower charge, but facing so much time on the, on the higher charge, then the plea bargain is kind of like, it's, it's, it is, it's forced upon someone because they're like, well, I'm facing so much time on the other charge. I should, I should probably take, take that plea. But the, the consequences that arise from taking a plea are, are sometimes lifelong. 
you know, it's disenfranchisement. It's, you know, you lose, you, you could lose your right to vote. You could lose your right to be in public housing. There are a lot of places that pull your criminal record when you are interviewing for a job and won't hire people who are um, formerly incarcerated, who are returning citizens. There, it's just, it is just- going to make your life so much harder. You can't get loans. You can't get, you know, student- um, you can't get uh, student loans. You can't get into certain programs. You can't do certain things when, even though the judge says, okay, your sentence is X number of days, which is the days you've already spent in prison. You're like, let me just take it. I'm going to get out. I'm done. Case is over. And what, what you don't realize is that you are then being saddled with a criminal record for life and you're being sentenced to lifelong unemployment, to lifelong you know, disenfranchisement, lifelong you know, inability to vote and to participate in local elections and to, to, to stand up for yourself and to, you know, be discriminated against, to not be able to get into public housing, to not be able to get certain um, services. So it's extremely important that people realize how powerful, how powerful these elected DAs are and, and why making those changes and having someone who will take all that into consideration matters. Yeah. Even when you're talking about it, I'm like, I just filled out, you know, uh, for, for coronavirus relief, you know, there's all these like relief packages that exactly. the government filled out. Like I remember checking those boxes. Like, have you ever been uh, committed or have you ever committed a crime or pled guilty to a crime or anything like that? Like that was on the application. Yep. So, um, so people who've been convicted of crimes are excluded from the, the, the COVID relief money. Yeah. And that's just like one of, I mean, you already mentioned several instances where it's, it's crazy to think about like how something so small can really have a lasting impact in, in an individual's life. It's it's so sad. Um, I know you you keep bringing up the, the... So this is what's really, really interesting to me and why I'm so excited that you're on is you mentioned, uh, you know, the power that these district attorneys have and how, you know, you're obviously running for district attorney. So I would love to hear, explain to our audience again, who might not understand, you know, how the whole system works, like what the role of the district attorney is and why it's so important to get somebody in there, like to make some reforms. So the DA is quite possibly the most powerful elected official you don't know. So many people have no idea who their DA is or that they vote for DA. Or that the DA is the person who goes into court every single day and says, on behalf of the people of the state of New York. So they are acting in your name, if you're a New Yorker or for your local jurisdiction. They're acting and saying that they represent you and they are doing things in your name. So they are holding certain people accountable, locking certain people up, not locking other people up, deciding the charges that people are brought up on deciding whether or not someone gets bailed, deciding on sentences that get recommended, the, you know, deciding on plea bargains, deciding which cases don't get prosecuted at all. And that is such a hugely powerful position um, in terms of how it impacts communities, how it impacts people, how it makes our system work in the way that it does, which is, you know, I think oftentimes you'll hear people say, our criminal justice system is broken, but it's not. It's, it's kind of, that's a false narrative. Like the criminal justice system is operating exactly how it was designed, which is to perpetuate oppression and marginalization of, of communities that are already disenfranchised and, and instead be rigged in favor of the wealthy and well-connected, the 1%. And that is what continues to operate with these very powerful entrenched establishment incumbent DAs. 
And I'm taking on someone who's extremely powerful, Cy Vance, who has really misused the power of the DA's office and undermined the credibility of that office and not made the system fair and not made it just. Um, And I think we need someone in there who has spent her career as a public defender, which I have, and, and I will be focused on the mission of bringing justice to the DA's office, bringing fairness and bringing bold transformational change. And I think it's so important that people pay attention to those local elections, get involved, find out who your DA is, read up on them, find out who is acting in your name um, and, and doing these things that really, really matter. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's what's really, really interesting. I think in all of this, everybody wants to know like, okay, what can I do? Like what, what do we need to get done? Like protesting is incredible and it's already accomplishing great things. But I think, you know, obviously we're talking about voting is like one of the biggest things that everybody can do. And I think when we talk about that, people just think about the highest level of office. Like we're talking about like the presidential election in November. But one of the most important things is actually at some of these local elections that are, are this is really going to have the impact in your community. So I completely agree with you. You have to pay attention to these down ballot elections, um, especially your local DA. I mean, that the, the person who is your elected DA has so, so, so much power and can really make huge changes if they want to. Um, you know, in Manhattan, we have a DA who has perpetuated this lock them up, throw away the key mentality, which does not keep us safe. And I think one of the jobs of the DA is to, to protect the community to make sure people are safe. But safety, we are also like presented with this, oh, either we are going to be safe or, you know, and lock people up or we're not going to be safe and, and not lock people up. But it turns out, like, if you look at the data that locking people up is not what keeps us safe. You know, when someone's locked up for, for a few months, a few weeks, or even just a couple of days, they become exponentially more likely to reoffend or get rearrested for all the reasons we talked about before, that then they lose everything that they've ever worked for. And then they get out and have no, have no options. And they end up, you know, re reentering the, the system in this, you know, revolving door type way. But, but the, the DA is so critically important to pay attention to because of what a huge, huge impact she can have on the community. Um, and we've actually never had a woman as Manhattan district attorney. The terms are four years, but there are no term limits. So the current Manhattan DA, Cy Vance, will have been there for 12 years, but his predecessor was there for 36 years. So in our lifetime, two old white men have held the position. And in the last century, it's been four. Um, so it's- Wow, really? Yeah. Yep. That's wild. I did yep. not know that. Four yeah. men. Four men, um, all white. And that's who's held the position. Yeah. Yeah. And, and of course, hear- like, yeah, things haven't changed, you know, yeah, like <laughs> you can't change stuff unless you, you know, you have to really come in and, and, and we're running this like insurgent campaign to try to take down this incredibly imp- like powerful establishment incumbent. And he is um, someone who's able to raise a lot of money just to put this in perspective for your listeners. If you wanted to donate to a presidential campaign or a federal race, the maximum one can give is $2,800 for a cycle for the primary. You want to give $2,800, that's the max. So maybe over a course of a few months, people can spread that out and donate, you know, 100, 100, 100, whatever. For my race, the maximum donation is $35,000. 
which is more than 10 times the limit. So someone like Cy Vance or other like entrenched incumbents, establishment Democrats who are super wealthy, well-connected, giving breaks to the rich and powerful, call 10 friends and get 10 people to give them 35 grand and they've raised $350,000 in an afternoon. Wow. You know, I've spent my career as a public defender. I don't have that many people who can write me checks for $35,000. But this is what we're up against. So instead, we're trying to like do this on a much more grassroots level and build a coalition of support across the country because this race matters, not just locally, but people look to the Manhattan DA's office to figure out how their criminal legal system should operate in their city. So this affects cities across the country. So everyone should go to ElizaOrleans.com and <laughs> give a few dollars if it's not a hardship because we really need the support. Yeah. I mean, that, that explains everything. I mean, that, that completely explains like why things, you know, we all wonder, like we all want change and like why things aren't happening. Like this is a, it's a pretty, a system that is not, it's not easy to break. Nope. I would love to hear more about the reforms that you think should be taken into the DA office, obviously things that you want to do, but also some things that you'd like to see done across the country. Absolutely. Um, I think that, that there are things that are happening across the country in terms of DA offices and prosecutions that are so, so problematic. I mean, we need to decriminalize poverty. We have basically made things that are a product of people being poor into crimes in this city. So we're arresting people for sleeping on the train, for laying down on park benches, for shoplifting toothpaste from a Dwayne Reed. And we need to address the underlying issues that people are having. Um, we've, we've, we're prosecuting people who are suffering from mental health issues or from substance use disorder instead of giving them the treatment they need. Right now, our New York City jails are the biggest mental health provider in our city. So the idea that instead of giving people treatment for the, for the problems that they're having, we're just locking them up and not addressing those problems means that those people will just continue to cycle through and those things will never be addressed. And so I think that that there's there's addressing the underlying issues and making sure that the DA's office is is deeply committed to investing in communities and figuring out how to, you know, reduce harm, reduce violence, but by giving making community investments in things that will actually address the issues people are facing. But also I think accountability is important and, and accountability is important when it comes to people who are perpetrating real harm. And that includes, you know, the Harvey Weinsteins of the world, but also it includes police officers. And just because someone is in a uniform, it doesn't mean that they shouldn't be held accountable for, for their actions, for their brutality for uh, and for murder. So I think that, that you know, DAs who've been in the pockets of, of the police unions are, are need to go. That we need to elect DAs, and I will be a DA who is going to hold police accountable, just like I would hold anyone else accountable. And especially if they're using their power to perpetrate harm on on human beings. Yeah, yeah, that's huge. It's huge, and that's like a question I've been asking myself, like watching some of these these situations unfold, where you know police officers are getting off, and it's like how like there is a a clear murder caught on camera. And that, that kind of explains like why this is like a systemic problem that it just like is, it's, it constantly keeps happening. And obviously we need to change some things up. 
to make it, to make things uh, operate a little bit differently. I obviously, you know, obviously it's great to hear like what you would want to do as a district attorney. What do you think we can be doing, you know, this audience, anybody who is listening and wants to enact real change? Like, what do you think we should be focused on right now? So I think that it's just so important that people pay attention to their local elections, but especially DA elections. I think that there needs to be a reckoning within our within our system. And I think that there is a lot, we are seeing a lot of this with, with the protests that are happening. I mean, I was out in December, 2014, which I guess now was five and a half years ago, protesting on the street, chanting, I can't breathe after the murder of Eric Garner on video by a police officer. And I was out there in the streets, but there weren't that many people out there with me. There were some, but but the fact that now five and a half years later, we're seeing protests in all 50 states and dozens of countries. And people are finally, I think, coming to a reckoning like where they are recognizing how police brutality has disproportionately uh, affected people of color. And the police are killing Black people at an inordinate rate. And it is time to fix that. It is time to call it out. We need to actively be fighting against these racist institutions every single day. And we need to be standing up for what we believe in and speaking out and being active in that, in that role every single day. And, and to, 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 you know, I think that it's been so great to see so many people who maybe have never spoken out about these issues posting on social media. And I'm like, so I don't want to, to devalue any of that because I do think that that matters, that sharing posts and showing that you're in solidarity and speaking out matters, but your actions have to follow your words. You have to put your, put your money where your mouth is or put your time where your mouth is. You can't just be a keyboard warrior because we need to be out there fighting for change. This is the moment and it's on us. It's on our generation to change this and to not allow these things to continue. And, you know, we, we have to, you know, make this world a better place. We have to make it less racist. We have to make it that we're not just inordinately locking up people of color, that we're not just, you know, letting the police kill with a, without any accountability. And so I think that continuing to be involved, to be the person out there, you know, using your voice, using your, your physical body, if you are a white person, putting yourself in between people of color and the police, because you can physically protect them. Your presence protects them and, and making sure that you weaponize that privilege for good and not for evil, like we saw in the Central Park situation. And you, you know that, that it is, it costs, the, the human cost of all of this is way too high and that we're not going to stand for it anymore. Um, and, and I would be grateful to have anybody involved and to, to email me anytime and to get involved in my election and to, to donate and get your friends too. Because if we're able to do this in Manhattan, then, then we can do it anywhere. And so they can check us out at elizaorleans.com. But get involved in your local election. Look, who's, look up who's the DA. And if they're not doing stuff that, that, you, that you agree with, and they're standing up and saying that they're doing it on behalf of the people of your state, then make sure that you hold them accountable and you, you know, call them out and you call their office and you vote them out. Because we're coming for their seats. 
<laughs> I love that. You got me just fired up just now. You're fired I'm up. Fired up. I love that. And I'm obviously going to link all of your stuff in show notes. I think it's really uh, amazing what you're doing. Um, and for and obviously anybody in New York, we do have a larger New York audience um, who will have the opportunity to vote for you specifically. For anybody else who wants like resources on how to you know understand when their election is, uh, who their DA candidates are, how do you, do you have any resources that people can use? There are a ton of organizations that are that are doing that kind of work that are putting that stuff together. I know uh, I know that the the Safety and Justice Pack um, is very involved in that, and there are a number of other I'm sure like local organizations wherever people are that are putting out information about the local DA races. So just Google it, make sure you find out. I know there's a runoff happening in Los Angeles right now where there is an incumbent who has done a lot of really really terrible things and not hold held people accountable. And she's being challenged by, by someone who I think has, um, who's going to be much more progressive. So, you know, if you're in LA, go, go learn more about George Gascon and go vote for him and make sure, you know, you take down a person who is, who's been, who's been, a uh, you know, not a great representative of the people of Los Angeles. Yeah. And I'm going to, I'm going to try and include, include other resources too, for anybody listening to get more information about this. But Eliza, thank you so much for being on. Of course, anytime. Yes, the second second time we got to get you on for a third time is the charm. I love having you on the podcast. You're the best. Oh, it's so much fun. Thank you, thank you for all the great questions, and it's um, it's always so much fun to chat with you. Yeah, you too. Thanks. All right, that is a wrap on our episode this week. I hope it was helpful and that you got some value from it. I want to give a big thank you to our guests this week. I'm going to link all their stuff in show notes so you can find out more and send them some love. If you like this episode, definitely share with your friends, post it on IG stories, tag us, let me know your favorite part or any aha moments you may have had. You can, of course, find me on Instagram at Big Kid Problems or on my personal at Sarah A. Merrill underscore. I love connecting with you guys and hearing your thoughts on this podcast. As always, I want to give all of you a big thank you for tuning in and listening to this show. There are lots of podcasts out there and just know I'm really honored that you choose to spend your hour with me. If you haven't done so, I encourage you to subscribe to this podcast and leave a nice little review if you're feeling generous. I will be back next week with a brand new episode. And if you get bored before then, I have lots of other episodes you can catch up on. So until then, I will see you next week. Tuesday.